Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. Despite all the grand rhetoric at the opening of COP26, a chasm emerged between what the world needed and what was agreed upon by the conference delegates. Sure, there were some noteworthy agreements on ending deforestation and slashing methane emissions, but it's clear that we're still nowhere near where we should be. Only radical commitments followed through with honest, monitored and transparent action will be sufficient to address the scale of change needed to keep the world a safe place. In this episode of Everyday Emergency, we'll bring you a special conversation hosted by MSF's International President, Dr. Christos Christou, with Dr. Maria Guevara, MSF's International Medical Secretary, and Stephen Cornish, the General Director of MSF Switzerland. Last month, Maria and Stephen attended COP26 as observing delegates. As we'll hear, it became clear to Maria and Stephen during their time at the conference that solidarity has limits. High-emitting, high-income countries should be responsible for providing and mobilising resources to assist low-emitting, low-income countries to mitigate and adapt to global heating. But in reality, this is not the case. If the COVID-19 pandemic is anything to go by, the future does not look hopeful. We must change this. Failing to do so will undoubtedly lead to suffering on a scale yet to be seen. But on a positive note, Health figured more prominently at COP this year. The health community mobilised in unprecedented numbers, calling for urgent action in the months leading to the conference and delivering the health argument for climate action to many different sectors and leaders at COP. Over 50 countries committed to transform their health sector to be resilient and sustainable, and the health community has become a more visible and relevant part of the climate negotiations. Health should be at the centre of these processes, because this global problem will affect the health of everyone, some much sooner than others. The patients and communities we care for are already among them. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Christos Christou. I'm the International President of Medicine Sans Frontier, MSF, and I will be your host today. Uh, today we're going to be discussing COP26, why MSF was a part of it, and what my colleagues learned from their participation. Let's first uh, go through a short round of introduction so our listening and can meet our guests. I will start with uh, Maria. Dr. Maria Guevara is a medical doctor and MSF's International Medical Secretary. Her work in the humanitarian sector began with uh, our organization in Liberia in 2004. She has worked in Guatemala, Haiti, Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria, Myanmar, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, South Sudan, and recently in the United States for a COVID-related intervention. Hi, Maria. Hi, Christos, and uh, hello again to everybody. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be uh, engaging on this issue. Thanks for being here today, Maria. And uh, we have Steve, Steve Cornish, is the General Director of MSF Switzerland and the MSF Operational Center of Geneva, and has been a part of MSF for more than 25 years. During his career, Steve worked in countries like Russia, Sierra Leone, Georgia, and Peru. He has also worked for other international organizations where humanitarian and uh, environmental issues were his main concerns. Is that right, Steve? Hi. Hey, hi, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to see so many people online joining us. This is going to be a great conversation. And uh, it's one where I hope I'll be able to share some of the patient and community stories that we've been working with who are already affected by uh, climate change and to really make the link between uh, humanitarianism and environmental issues uh, so that all the folks out there, as well as uh, all of ourselves, uh, really understand uh, why we're taking uh, this position and why we're trying to link planetary health into the conversation. That's exactly the point. Thank you, Steve. And I'm Christos Christo. I'm the international president of MS and uh, general and emergency surgeon. So let us now jump into the conversation by seeing first your uh, general impressions of the event. How was the atmosphere of this? Uh, since you were there the first week, uh, let's start with you. Well, I tell you, uh, arriving there, it was absolutely electric. And it was amazing to see so many people coming together for a common cause, uh, working on this most important issue. Uh, but then after a few days, we started to realize also that there was really a bit of a divide between the, uh, the political and the social. And uh, some of that was due to COVID, some to travel restrictions, some to security. But it really did feel like there were sort of two worlds uh, working together uh, or somewhat divided at COP. 
And then by the end of that first week, there was some there was some amazing announcements around countries joining together to end deforestation and to power past coal. But there started to become a little bit of angst that uh, maybe the COP26 would, would fail and maybe it wouldn't uh, keep the Paris promises of 1.5 degrees alive. And, and that's when I left and handed over to the capable hands of Maria. Thanks, Steve. And uh, for you, Maria, how was your experience last week? Um, wow, I can only echo what Steve has just said. The, the air was quite electric. It was really eye-opening for me. And in all honesty, it was almost exhausting to some extent um, because, you, because of that tension, the energy, the intensity, the pulse, the crowds of people. But you also felt that there was this divide of very close discussions where the world, the rest of the community was just screaming whether they were inside or outside at the top of their lungs calling for attention to really do something concretely to meet this goal of keeping everything under 1.5 degrees. It was certainly um, also quite telling of the importance and growing concern that everybody's having around this issue. And it was really an honor to be there on behalf of MSA professionally, but also an incredible opportunity to be there on a personal basis and witness this and be part of that voice. Sounds like you two had a very interesting and busy time at Glasgow. I'd like uh, to emphasize on this uh, being the first time for MSF as an observer at COP. And now is our time to look at lessons to be learned and see what's next. But, but before, if you had to explain in less than two minutes why MSF, what would you say, Maria? Two minutes, wow. Uh, short, but um, maybe I'll just go with two words. Um, solidarity and responsibility. You know, in our work as a, a medical humanitarian organization, we clearly are seeing the increasing effects of um, climate change on, on the work that we do. It is, is a recognition that climate hotspots are the same as the humanitarian hotspots. And that's something that we have been keeping a pulse on for quite a few years now. Unfortunately, though, these hotspots continue to remain blind spots for the rest of the world. And a large part of our work is, as you know, to bear witness and to give voice to our patients and staff and the reality they're experiencing on a daily basis. So it was really important to be there at the COP for that, to stand in solidarity with the community and to bring health and humanitarian concerns to the table. And hopefully we've done at least a piece of that. The other is really to remind our, and our recognition of our, our own social responsibilities and organization to do no harm. So basically we came to learn what we can do better on this to ensure we do our part in being more environmentally friendly and find those we can learn from and identify those we, who we should be partnering with to carry out our work more responsibly. I hope that was within two minutes. <laughs> that was great. And uh, I will echo the hotspots being still blind spots for the others, as well as um, trying uh, doing no harm. Uh, and here, Steve, uh, how would you explain why our participation this year was important? I mean, why MSF and why this year? Well, I think it was very important because there's still uh, an understanding among some that the that the climate emergency is something that's going to come, that's still down the road. And I think it's very important that we make that link with an emergency or organization and with the emergencies that we're seeing on the ground right now, where uh, we are understanding that many of the things we deal with, from malnutrition to uh, different outbreaks, uh, they have links to climate. So it was very important uh, that we bring that voice. It was also a, a big year because... A number of organizations from the World Health Organization to Healthcare Without Harm and many more um, were really trying to uh, get across the message to the negotiators and to the world, in fact, that, that the climate crisis is really a, it's a human crisis. It's a health crisis. It's not just a technical debate about uh, kilotons of carbon and about energy transition. All those things are important, but we have to remember why we're doing it. And, uh, and that why is taking on a whole new level of urgency that we felt as an organization, as Doctors Without Borders, that, that we had a duty also uh, to bring that urgency, to bring the solidarity and the support of the medical community, and uh, to bring the real life experience of our patients and communities, many of whom couldn't be there at the negotiation table. And, uh, and so we tried to pass their voice uh, into the world stage so that people would understand the same degree of urgency that, that we have in our operations and in our hearts because we see it every day on the, on the ground. That's exactly, Steve. Uh, now, indeed, the uh, climate crisis is a health crisis, is a humanitarian crisis. So, so given this framework and MSF's first time with official observer status, what uh, were you able to contribute to COP? Uh, what was the extent of your participation, Steve? Um, well, it was it was actually uh, quite uh, quite important, and uh, and we were really welcomed by 
the other health actors uh, by many seasoned hands who have been in the game for a long time working on environmental concerns. Uh, so we were really pleased with that. Uh, we were given several uh, opportunities uh, to speak on behalf of Doctors Without Borders and our patients. We participated and spoke on a panel linking the future of technology, health and climate change and another on climate change and migration. And uh, for us, one of the things that, that we really wanted to get across was, yes, there's this very important race to, to zero carbon and, and to stop the damage that's going to continue to occur. But at the same time, there are still millions of our patients around the world that don't even have access to basic care. Uh, and so we really made the pitch also for access to health for all, for the bottom billion. Um, the responsibility to decarbonize uh, lies with uh, those nations that are, have developed earlier and are created the lion's share of of the pollution at hand. So they really have to scale down. And we have a moral obligation to help the countries around the world mitigate and adapt and get ready for uh, the uh, difficulties to come. And uh, the other things that we did were, uh, that Maria was mentioning, is we reached out to many partners. Uh, we learned a lot. We learned that, uh, that it's not just uh, technology, but uh, behavior adaptation, changing the way that we act and ensuring a culture change so that everybody uh, in the organization and everybody online here and all of us citizens all take individual responsibility. And big changes can be made uh, that way um, from uh, some of the experiences that others shared who are on the path to decarbonize and cut waste already for several years. We learned a lot about how we can reduce single-use items, uh, how we can um, decarbonize some of the uh, transport and uh, other functions that we need to use to get medicines and people around the world. So we came away with a lot of lessons and great partnerships and a great energy uh, to be able to uh, move much faster inside uh, MSF. And, and so I'm jazzed and ready to go. Yeah, you mentioned also other partners, and I, will come, I would like to, to come to this again later. And uh, uh, from your perspective, Maria, how was your involvement? Uh, what did you get from, from taking part in uh, COP? Well, I mean, I think, I think what... Steve said, I can, again, once more echo, but I th we just need to remember that we've just barely touched the tip of the iceberg. You know, actually, this isn't, this is, in fact, my second time at the COP, but um, I was at the COP24 in 2018, Katowice, representing MSF, but in the sidelines. It wasn't actually in the main event, and we were invited by some of the seasoned vets that um, Steve had referred to, like the Global Climate and Health Alliance. They, were, they hold a summit, usually annually, with the, at the COP, but they us it's usually at the nearby university compound. So for me, it was clearly not anywhere near the side of negotiations. And it was really striking that health was being discussed at the sideline, much less the humanitarian concerns. So it was already front and center that we, as an issue, that somehow we needed to bring that at the center of the COP. So um, this year, with it being actually there in the blue zone being discussed, it's a huge um, opportunity, but that we need to keep writing um, ahead and to also not keep, not just keep health on the table, but also bridge the discussions to take note of the humanitarian situation. So a lot of that work needs to happen now, post-COP26 today. So I think there's a lot more um, we can do to keep this um, issue of health and also the humanitarian angle on the table. Yeah, I agree with you. You also mentioned about bridging with the humanitarian needs. I, I, I truly hope that delegates and attendees uh, heard our main messages as medical humanitarian organization. Since, since for us, it is very clear how the, the climate crisis is uh, having real effects on people's health. And even in a more pronounced way on the health of people in vulnerable or crisis settings. Maria, perhaps you can elaborate more on, on, on this. Uh, what does it mean, uh, uh, health of people in vulnerable or, or crisis settings? Well, I mean, just to... To reiterate, as you've already said, climate crisis is a health crisis and definitely encouraging to see that on the front and center in the negotiating space. But a lot of the discussions are almost always around the health concern as maybe related to the rich. And it's really important to keep highlighting the impacts um, that we are already witnessing for the most vulnerable. As you know, they are the least prepared. They are the least impacted. As we've said, humanitarian hotspots are actually the climate hotspots today especially in fragile or unstable settings where they're not only having to deal with exacerbations that climate change um, imposes on emergencies today, but they're compounding and cascading emergencies. So they don't even have the capacity to or the time to recover from one crisis to the next. And, um, you know, they're also already facing the high numbers of illnesses and deaths due to malaria, cholera, malnutrition, trauma. And these are obviously exacerbated by climate changes. So 
um, important for us to keep bringing the voice uh, and the recognition of this inequity and imbalance in the burden of diseases and the negative impacts of climate change. Um, and that's why our voice in such a conference is quite crucial. But again, I have to reiterate that is an everyday exercise, not just at the COP. Exactly, it's an everyday exercise. Uh, uh, Steve, uh, what do you think about this and what did you get uh, from this uh, COP? Well, one thing was was really the the responsibility of uh, of medical actors and, and health voices uh, to help be that moral uh, bellwether to hold leadership to account. We've had uh, many promises of uh, both funds that will come and technology transfer to come from the more developed nations to uh, those that are most affected, uh, but those promises have yet to uh, be turned into action. And so, uh, the funding to help technological advances to help mitigation and adaptation. They're already several years late and underfunded. And there's another regime, uh, which is kind of like a, a global insurance regime, which is supposed to help uh, developing countries and those most affected when they suffer the large catastrophic uh, consequences. And those discussions are also quite late. So there's something here where collectively we have to uh, help our leaders have the courage to uh, live up to their promises and to start now in urgency uh, to be taking that responsibility for the historic contribution to carbon, following through on their words. And there's still a long way to go there. And I'm not sure that, um, that we felt as strongly our responsibility in holding those leaderships to account based on what we see and what we know as, as a medical organization. And I, I think that left an indelible mark that uh, the hard work is, is yet to come. We have a lot to learn as an organization, a lot to do to decarbonize ourselves and to uh, uh, build programs that will build resiliency, but we can't lose sight also of our, uh, what I believe is a, is a moral obligation uh, to use our patients' uh, stories, to use our voices as a medical organization, uh, to together with uh, medical organizations and doctors and nurses and, and the population at large around the world to really hold our leadership to account for uh, much more ambitious and, uh, and a much greater scale uh, in tackling what is uh, an existential crisis to come. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Steve. Let us now change the format a bit from the open-ended questions and allow me to ask you a more uh, pointed uh, question. I would like for each of you to point out two key outputs of uh, COP26 and how we, as MSF, need to follow up with them. Uh, Maria, would you, would you like to, to, to start first? Sure. Um, so as already been mentioned, a big success that came out of the COP is on health being front and center and that the commit, there was an actual commitment from 50 countries or more to green their healthcare systems. And this is actually quite a coup. But what needs to happen is that the ministries of health needs to be actually part of the negotiation streams. And at least in this COP, they're not front and center in those discussions. Although certainly they may have been consulted, they are not necessarily present in the actual um, negotiations of the COP. But um, for MSF involvement, we've, well, the first for me is to see how we ourselves can join forces with these countries that made the commitment, especially where we are running health projects and where we are actually part of that system. And it would be important to, to build those bridges and those partnerships with the ministries of health to strive to actually reduce carbon emissions and environmental harms together, find those solutions together um, and ensure, you know, whether that's on establishing a more sustainable supply chain, whether that's ecologically responsible management of waste, which are the biggest um, contributor for um, health systems in, in the, you know, environmental harms. We could be also working with ministries of environment ourselves, which are not traditional actors for us to engage in. And maybe in the countries where we are working, we could to forge those, um, those entry roads in the discussions. The second is partnering with other institutions and in the community itself. So part of the work we were trying to do at COP26 was identify which sectors, which um, uh, other institutions and other disciplines we should be engaging with and try to find a way to adapt our operational res responses and to work on our mitigating practices to actually better respond to emergencies and address those increasing needs of the communities affected and really work in a community-led um, rather than just a community-based approach. Those are my two outputs. Yeah, 
No, this, this is brilliant. I mean, uh, joining forces but with partners, with uh, the Ministry of Health and the authorities is exactly what we need to have in our mind. Uh, and you, Steve, uh, what two main outputs would you like and how do we, as MSF again, need to follow them up? Yeah, I think two things. Uh, they're really simple, but uh, we don't have to do it all alone and uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel uh, because there are a lot of other partners and a, and a lot of experience already out there. And one of the things that uh, we really need to take on board is uh, how do we build resiliency into the systems or how do we partner with people that can help to do that? And and that's where expanding on what Maria was saying around patients and communities as partners. We know that in disaster, uh, patients and, and partners and communities, they're the first line of response. And so how can we strengthen the uh, line of response? How can we move more into preventive approaches and uh, leave behind uh, tools, behavior and partnerships that will help them build uh, resiliency? And we've seen um, and learned from a few organizations that have already been doing some interesting things in, uh, in India to do the same types of resiliency building with partners and patients uh, with communities of health. And there are quite a number of things that were done to bring health systems off-grid and off offline to ensure that uh, the type of technologies we're bringing uh, are adapted to the settings and will be able to help f uh, the communities function and will be able to function in the midst of, uh, of, of climate emergencies. And those two things taken together, I think, um, will allow us to really play our part. And we, we'll be learning in action and learning what we're doing. We generally like to uh, have everything uh, solid and, and proven that everything will work. But we simply don't have the time. And that was another thing that many of the actors uh, tried to transmit to us, that we have to have the courage to uh, try things and fail and, and learn fast. Uh, because we don't have uh, the time just to have everything scientifically proven that it's going to give the type of impact and outputs that we want to see. And that's where the, the bottom-up learning ideas and experience meet the, uh, the, the top-down um, technologies and reorganizations and partnerships, and the magic happens somewhere in the middle. And spoke to a number of um, people who led either companies or uh, municipalities or health systems that have already been on this journey. And uh, they basically told us, uh, aim high, promise uh, the moon, and if we uh, get halfway there in the short term, that'll be great. But then the magic will happen along the way. And that's when we'll have a mix of, of local solutions and ideas, uh, when we'll have uh, new technologies and, uh, and types of partnerships that, that can make the difference and, uh, and get to uh, decarbonize faster, to make communities more resilient faster. And, uh, but we just need that courage to do it. And so I'm hoping we'll be able to translate that courage into uh, Doctors Without Borders. So we're not alone. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. All these sound very familiar to me, especially following MSF the last almost 20 years. We indeed have to aim high. And um, even if we reach half the way there, this is where the magic happens. And this is also very familiar to me now following MSF all these years. So um, it seems like a very big project to follow yet always a very important one for us as an organization. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this insight with us. Uh, it looks like we have a lot of action points here. Let me take a small break now from our conversation and uh, reset our room here today. Could you share with us how the climate crisis is creating health challenges that will overlap in the future? And how can we get ready for uh, these health challenges of tomorrow, as you mentioned before? Um, yeah, so first I just wanted to make a comment on what Steve had just said. I, I like the idea of making magic happen. and um, I really look forward to that courage within our organization, but in the world to actually try to do that. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been um, highlighting these overlapping health challenges that uh, we've been experiencing or seeing um, affecting our patients and our staff in the field. And We've been producing this Lancet Countdown Brief policies um, for the last four years. And this last one, we've been we started to describe this more as the connected, compounding, and cascading events that we are definitely observing in the field today, affecting um, all the populations already in weak systems, um, have, having little time to recover from one shock to the next. And actually, this COVID pandemic that we globally are experiencing collectively has certainly shown just how incredibly connected the world is. It's a globalized world today. And how an outbreak like this compounds on top of existing crisis, like situations as in conflict setting. So our work in Yemen is one of those. Additionally, the cascading effect on other infections causing like significant illnesses and deaths like malaria, 
measles or even Ebola, as in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we have to remember that um, the Ebola outbreak that started in Congo in 2018 continued till 2020, just when um, COVID hit. So there's this just kept compounding and cascading effects. For me as a medic, I see, um, you know, the, the practices that has been proposed to answer to um, climate change, like mitigation and adaptation, I kind of liken that to prevention and cure. So seeing it as like two sides of the same coin to promote health and well-being. And I find they're both necessary actions to tackle all the insecurities that are wrought by actually human-made disasters. So for me, um, also, uh, in um, at least in MSF, we are now framing a lot of the um, climate change and health relations or environmental health relations uh, um, at least over a more overarching planetary health framing that actually puts humans at the center as not only the victims to the threats, but also, and especially the reason, the cause of these threats. And therefore, hopefully, we are also the source of those solutions needed. In MSF, so we're looking at this through that lens, through the pillars of operational adaptation, footprint mitigation, and also bearing witness and advoc giving advocacy to um, to the to our the populations affected, just on the operational adaptations, this would mean probably what I call the three A's. So better or improving context analysis in the situation on the ground by putting and mainstreaming this climate change and environmental degradation lens, building capacities on better assessments and what would that take so we understand better the landscape we're entering into. So as we leave in the wake of the response, we don't. Um, create a, a negative impact wake, and then developing tools that will anticipate better or predict better where these emergency or disasters might happen. And I think this will help us um, uh, address the health challenges of what is awaiting us in tomorrow, if not already today. Thanks, Maria. I would not agree more, and especially when you mentioned the role of uh, each human being on that, being on the center. Uh, uh, Steve, uh, you, you know MSF well. And uh, you are steering one of uh, our operational sets. So uh, what are, to your opinion, the main challenges that MSF is facing as we try to become greener or efficient and uh, responsible in our use of our resources? Well, I, I think the first one is that we're seeing uh, increasing need and emergencies around the world. And uh, so our teams are struggling to to cope and respond to the needs today and uh, trying to overlay that with getting ready for their needs and the responsibility of tomorrow, I think uh, creates a, a healthy tension, but one that's, that sometimes then means that, uh, that saving lives today takes precedence over, over the uh, changes that we can make to improve the organization. One of the things we have done, we have, we have trialed a number of practical solutions already, uh, from telemedicine to thermally insulated tents that just with a small solar uh, panel can keep the temperatures inside under 25 degrees, uh, which could help us store medicines better, help us have uh, surgical units that are off-grid, uh, help recuperation time for patients that have cholera or other things, especially in, a, in an ever-warming planet. We've trialed uh, solar oxygen plants and solar generators. So there's a lot of technology that we've piloted, but we've had uh, real troubles in, in scaling them up and in seeing what it would take to, to train the workforce, to make those technologies available, and to have them adapted to all of the different settings where we work. We're also having difficulty uh, in getting to that last mile. The most difficult places to reach are often the ones that, uh, uh, between Mother Nature, between the ongoing conflicts, uh, and uh, the sheer isolation of some of these locations, make it uh, extremely challenging to be able to uh, put all of those solutions in place at the same time. And uh, I think we also, uh, and we spoke a little earlier about, about a culture change, um, and that still has some room to go. Uh, we have different planetary uh, health lenses and different environmentally friendly actions happening in different spaces. Uh, but we haven't knit it together uh, yet in a way where all of our 60,000 staff around the world um, understand what's expected of them and know how to be able to bring solutions uh, and make the type of changes. And I'm happy to say that a, a number of uh, uh, MSFs are now using a tool called ThinkUp uh, where we're able uh, to start uh, sourcing those ideas that come from the ground up. As we've heard from other organizations, that's where some of the best ideas have come from. And so we're really looking forward uh, to that as well. 
Yeah, thanks. And uh, you also mentioned that earlier about the exchanges you had with other organizations facing uh, similar challenges. Uh, would you like to share a bit more about uh, these exchanges and uh, their challenges and uh, what you learned from them? Yeah, well, we, we heard the same thing from many that uh, that they were able to make individual uh, advancements or, or trial great technology or make good proofs of concept. But they also had difficulty in, in scaling issues across uh, their organizations or scaling new technology across their organizations. So that's a collective challenge. And, uh, and it's one that we're going to be uh, sitting together with some of these partners to try to understand uh, what they've done to overcome them, uh, what their challenges are, and, and what we can learn from each other to help us uh, move forward in the most uh, adapted way. And uh, some of the things that, uh, that we learned uh, were that we don't just have to wait for the technological solution. In fact, uh, sometimes we do need technology and adaptive technology, but there's, there's not an app for everything. And uh, in fact, uh, what we saw was that uh, from sharing experience with others, that behavior change often made a bigger difference. And uh, two of the examples that we heard from, from other partners, one was uh, around uh, the orders that surgeons make in, the, in surgeries. And they, they found that 40% of what was ordered never got used. So it was ordered, inventoried, put on the shelf just in case, and then in the end uh, expired and was thrown away. Uh, and so that gives us a, an avenue to explore in our own surgical kits and in our own ordering. And we saw also that uh, um, there's a district in the UK that did behavior change and, and just explained to all of their frontline staff and nurses um, how much waste they had in disposable plastic and rubber gloves. And just through the conversation of having people think about when do they wash their hands, when do they put on a glove, and when is the second solution actually necessary, uh, they reduced the orders and the waste uh, by 6,000 pounds of plastic and rubber gloves. And so this is something that we'd already started to think about in our own fields. We've got, uh, we've got purchasers out there looking at how to uh, buy more local uh, items, how to reduce uh, the use of single-use items, how to autoclave more and, and re-sterilize. Uh, but now we've also added to that campaign uh, this uh, sensitization campaign to see if we can get the same type of results that, uh, that we saw and, and learned from the other partner. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, being a surgeon myself, I do exactly understand what you mean by such a huge amount of waste that uh, we would consume every time we we uh, operate in uh, in our theaters. No matter if it is here or in the other side of the board, in uh, different settings, poor or uh, uh, much more advanced uh, uh, resource settings, it is still uh, a huge amount. And uh, all these disposable things that we can um, uh, change, as he said, uh, most the, the cultures. The, the mentality around this. Uh, let us move now the conversation a little bit closer to our projects, our people, and our patients. Steve, uh, during your speech, which by the way was really powerful, and I'm really sorry that you had to deliver that under such a time pressure, but you mentioned the story of one of our colleagues. Uh, would you like to share an excerpt of uh, what uh, uh, was this about uh, with us today? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of our uh, medical colleagues from southern uh, Niger in Magaria. His name is Salisu. And uh, what he told us was that, uh, that the, the joy has gone out of living in, in the place where he lives. And the reason, he said, was that the rains had become so unreliable and so rare uh, that farming was becoming untenable. And the more that they worked uh, the land in these conditions, the less and the less that the land gave back. Uh, and then when the rains did come, they came with what scientists call uh, climate bombs. So that's where you get um, months worth of rain in like a 24-hour, 48-hour period. And uh, this washes away uh, crops, but also um, leads to an explosion in uh, vector-borne disease, so in mosquito populations. So that even when the rains came, instead of just being able to be thankful, um, they ended up seeing these spikes of, of malaria that would make the community sick. So the welcome rain has become something to help. And, uh, and this is collectively something that, that has created such a stress uh, and such a difficulty to imagine a future life and livelihood uh, that he's considering leaving with his family. And he said many other families are, are thinking the same. Wow, that's really powerful. Uh, from your side, Maria, in which ways have you noticed needs around the world are changing as a result of different climate patterns? And I'm sure you have uh, stories to share with us as well. Uh, certainly, um, but I just wanted to to grab on that comment that Steve said about, you know, just the fact of sharing that experience. Um, 
And uh, then to go back when you were asking about the partnerships kind of thing and that there is no app for everything. I, I, Steve is so good at picking up his little tweetable um, some, um, short messages. But I think it's, it's very relevant because it's, this is what sometimes is our added value is to highlight this experience and to really show what is happening on the ground. And, you know, and um, for those who are listening and not aware, just to say again that we've, we've tried to put all those down in a, in a, or at least some of it, some of our experience, which is tremendous um, in, a, in a Lancet Countdown brief um, for the last four years. And one that's come, coming to mind when you ask me that question is, is, um, is the increasing activities or act projects that we are doing addressing non-communicable diseases. So one of the, the cases that we've highlighted in, in the brief is a situation, in, for example, where in the MSF-supported um, emergency health center in Martisan, we've clocked that from 2019 to 2020, we've seen at least a 25% increase in the number of asthmatic patients that were admitted. Of course, you know, the reasons behind that, the causes are definitely multifactorial, but because there's a lack of, you know, real data that links epidemiological um, uh, information with that of the environment is, is lacking. So what we're, we've been trying to do is partner on how to, to get those environmental indicators. And so actually there was a, a project that was launched um, to, the, to set up and install a weather station with this air quality sensors in Port-au-Prince. Um, that's, that aims to kind of track these air quality indicators, such as the levels of um, particulate matters in the air. So hopefully that can help contribute to identifying actually the factors that would be leading to, that could be leading to an increase of asthma cases. Personally, you know, somebody who experiences um, exercise-induced asthma, you know, when you cannot breathe and catch your breath, that is a scary moment. And I had this experience when, we were, um, you know, as a representative in Asia a few years back and visiting China when the air quality was way above 400, which we are reading now um, that is happening in India. I, I literally couldn't breathe from day to day. And the whole week that I was there, I was, I was coughing and just really working to catch my breath. And I can imagine and for people who don't even have access to treatment, that's a terrible situation. But just to highlight again, there's a few others, right? Um, in the past uh, briefs, we've also highlighted increase in um, act activities we're, we're seeing related to heat-related deaths, heat waves, like in Pakistan. Um, you know, in, in uh, the summers in the in the south of the region, especially, have gotten worse in the last few years. And like, if you just look at Karachi, where there's 15 million people, the high heat and the humidity that's experienced through the summers then are exacerbated by out, uh, power outages. So you have a real increase in, in the deaths and exposure events. And so there, you know, as, uh, for MSF, we've been trying to integrate this in our emergency preparedness strategies and trying to sensitize the community around trying to mitigate that um, the best as possible. Um, and hopefully be, be able to share that experience with other um, responders. Um, another um, incident perhaps is, uh, you know, I know that migration is being more and more related to um, to displacements due to climate um, issues, and this is sort of what we've seen already still going on in Bangladesh, where you have compounding um, the acute floods on top of chronic situations like drought and desertification for people who are already displaced because their livelihoods have been um, made unstable um, because of these situations. So they're moving. Um, into you know urban settings where they're exposed to low access to social protection or um, just occupational hazards. So this is something that we've been starting to address for quite a few years already, um, like opening a pr uh, primary health care um, centers, occupational health care um, provision for those people like in the Dhaka's Kamrangichar slums. Um, where these people have been forcibly displaced because of flooding in their own farm farmlands and the salinization of the water has been made untenable for them to be living in those spaces. And these are just some of the few examples that have just come to mind right away that I would encourage others to um, look into those briefs to, to look at the deep dive of what those, some of those examples are from the field. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for sharing all this. And actually also thank you for sharing uh, your views on uh, partnerships. 
because uh, I noticed that uh, there was also such a question uh, on, on the chat room. Uh, and uh, I, would I would also like to link it with what we mentioned before about the joining forces, working in partnership with others, uh, uh, joining hand-to-hand with uh, uh, and working hand-to-hand with the Minister of Health. And uh, maybe the question now goes to uh, how far beyond that uh, in terms of partnerships uh, MSF can really work with, um, like for instance, other climate organizations. Uh, Steve, would you, would you like to, to take this? Sure. Um, I could tell you a, a really great example, of, and it also comes from Niger, where um, we have seen the, these uh, spikes in malaria that I spoke about and, and malnutrition, and the need is just so high uh, that you can't reach everywhere. And trying to bring uh, a responsive care is simply not adapted. So for a couple of years now, MSF has partnered with the communities themselves and uh, trained support workers who are not uh, medical people, but who are uh, folks in the community that are respected, uh, that want to help their community. And we've trained them in the basics of how to recognize the signs and symptoms of malaria and a few other uh, um, diseases and given them uh, the basic treatments. So they're able to uh, see the state of affairs in the population, to uh, help uh, dispense the medicine for malaria. We've also changed uh, how we work with them. And sometimes when we know that these climate bombs are coming, um, we'll do a mass drug administration where we'll ensure that they have the availability of, of anti-malarials uh, ahead of time so that they can have a preventive approach. And we've seen the mortality drop. And what these uh, health workers do is not only do they help the community understand, but they also then um, forward on the cases that are more severe to central locations where then MSF will be doing the... Uh, the, uh, the proper care in the inpatient wards. So that shows you a way that we can partner, uh, extend service, uh, build resiliency in the community and have the community really be uh, an actor in their own prevention and in their own health. And I think we need to do a lot more uh, things of that nature. Uh, when it comes to other organizations, in some of the cases where we've uh, been operating where there's heavy metal exposure, MSF can bring uh, the treatment, but we can't uh, put an end to causing uh, the underlying illnesses. And so we were working with uh, an organization that does that remediation. And uh, in uh, Zamfara, for example, there was cases of lead poisoning brought about by artisanal mining. And this organization made the remediation plan. We worked together with the Ministry of Health and, uh, and the government to put that in place so that we could take away the, the poisons, basically, that were uh, making people ill uh, by changing the practices. And now we want to go to that next step of how do we actually change uh, and give other livelihood options so that uh, people have an alternative. And we've looked with, uh, with an organization called Health and Harmony that has experience uh, in doing just that. And uh, we're going to try to make a partnership in um, uh, either Madagascar or Mozambique to do just that so that there's one actor uh, that's really helping uh, understand the community's needs and try to respond to the resilience. Uh, need by providing alternative livelihoods, work with another partner uh, to change and remediate uh, the issues to, that are uh, coming from artisanal mining. And then as the third partner, MSF, uh, would do the medical treatment and uh, move the rest of the medical needs from a responsive approach to a more preventive approach using uh, community health workers. And we're hoping that the triangulation of that and the experimentation of that will teach us a lot of what we need to learn and how to help uh, communities become more resilient in front of climate shocks to come. These all are brilliant examples that remind us how partnership is more important when it is happening on the ground next to those that we are there for. Uh, I don't know if Maria would like to uh, also add anything on this. Sure. I mean, I think if there's anything that climate crisis is showing us is that we cannot do this alone and we don't have all the expertise and we need other brains. So, I mean, I think, you know, some of those partnerships that Steve has already highlighted, I mean, we've also taken that further from, like, let's say the, the Zamfara-led poisoning, you know, working in um, Kyrgyzstan is, uh, it, it with trying to develop with, with this foundation uh, assessment tools. And so going back to what I'd said about defining um, building capacity to better assess the situations and the environment. So, you know, there's a huge health assessment tool that's really looking at the different um, um, uh, chemicals on the ground, but it's quite intensive to, to carry out. So trying to look at a way that makes it much quicker to do and easier to um, quickly make an analysis from. So that's one partnership. But I, I think it's important also that to, to look at operational research. And 
we work with a lot of um, uh, researchers and epidemiologists like Epicentre on really identifying, um, you know, how much of the actual climate and extreme weather changes is related to like cholera outbreaks in Yemen. And there's some publications that's been put out there already. One, one thing that comes to mind is um, the cholera outbreak in, um, in Haiti a few years back. You know, we, we had partnered with um, a school here in Switzerland, Ecole Polytechnique in Lausanne, to look at the different tools of predictions of where um, possibly the next outbreak would be. And we use this kind of technology to, to see where, which regions or which geographic areas would be most affected next and, and targeted our cholera vaccination response towards those areas really decreasing, helping to decrease um, consequent um, disease uh, patterns. So uh, there's so much more of that we should be doing and sharing with the rest of the community to highlight that there are different ways to actually assess, uh, analyze, and anticipate this. And we could definitely um, contribute to this, to this research as actors directly on the ground. That's that's a great point, uh, Maria. And we we did a similar thing, uh, partnering with some meteorological uh, organizations that uh, are predicting several weeks out uh, changes in the weather, and sometimes several months out about uh, what types of atmospheric conditions are likely. And this helped us actually with uh, with the outbreaks of of locust we saw from uh, Somalia and, and uh, East Africa last year to better position ourselves uh, and to prepare uh, the types of nutritional response which one could anticipate uh, was going to occur as a result of favorable conditions for ongoing uh, explosion of, uh, of, uh, of locust. And it proved to be exactly the case. And it's something that we would not have known and not have thought about if uh, we didn't partner with others who were looking at, uh, at these type of climactic conditions to come. Yeah, thanks both. And thanks for bringing also evidence and, um, and research on, uh, in this picture. But as we wrap this up, Let's quickly share with our audience again our main impressions of COP26 and uh, on why we attended this year as MSF. Uh, Steve, may I ask you if you would like to, to leave our listeners with a few messages and what these messages could be? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think there was, there's been a lot in the media of, of, of was COP a success or a failure? Uh, COP is, uh, is a necessary function to move the world towards the type of changes that we want to see. The difficulty is that we're still moving at incremental space. And we have to make sure that world leaders are going to start moving with a COVID-like global emergency response because that's what we're going to be facing with the climate crisis. And I'd say it's not only uh, um, their responsibility, it's our responsibility to hold them to account, to bring our voices, uh, to act, and uh, to care uh, like our lives depend on it because uh, in fact they do. And uh, we hold a moral responsibility for those who are most at risk today, but make no mistake, we'll be at risk uh, tomorrow. And uh, with any type of global emergency, it requires a global response. We haven't yet seen one at the height and the scope and the scale of urgency that's required, but it's up to all of us to make sure uh, that that's what we are going as quickly as possible. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Um, and you, Maria, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, just so many things actually but to compliment steve's um, comments uh, first i just wanted to say you know i at last night i stumbled upon this video that carl sagan was giving to the u.s congress in 1985 on climate change and his predictions was just spot on but what he said was at the end we are in this greenhouse together so i think you know for this climate uh, for this last message that i want to say is just that this climate crisis is one that's affecting us all um, perhaps unevenly across the, the, the globe, but that we actually each have a role to play in helping to reduce our own footprint, but also to recognize that this crisis is actually a health crisis. And we need to add our voice to call out to governments to keep to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, because actually not doing so is will be a death sentence to many already around the world suffering the consequences today of a 1.2 degrees Celsius. So I think if I can just um, leave on a, a hopeful point, maybe, you know, to quote my, to quote my friend and colleague, Dr. Renzo Ginto, um, we actually need to turn those blind spots I spoke about earlier to hopefully hope spots. So let's try to do that together. Thanks. Thank you, Maria. 
I may also share some closing remarks now, and I will try to, to summarize our conversation. Uh, as we said, and um, it's clear, it's obvious, the, the world is currently facing two interrelated crises, the impact of climate change and the rising threat of pandemics. And to, to my opinion, to our opinion, there are dual risks to humanity that we cannot really afford to separate. We know climate change is playing out much in the same way we see COVID-19 playing out. We see the inequalities at every level who gets sick, who can access treatment, who gets a vaccine. Both this pandemic and this climate change disproportionately impact the patients and communities we support. MSF is already responding to many of the world's most dramatic crises, conflicts, diseases, disasters, and displacement. And we see the consequences and magnified impacts that rapid uh, environmental change is having on those living in the most vulnerable environments. They are often those who have least ability to protect themselves, and those who are the least responsible for the root causes of the environmental degradation. I was also saying that uh, MSF as a movement and as a medical humanitarian organization needs to take clear steps. The first, as you said, Steve, to put our own house and our own missions in order. This is a huge task and massive investment and must be done without us losing focus on patients and communities, as you mentioned, Maria. We must do whatever necessary to avoid contributing to worsening a crisis that we know has a disproportionate impact on those we assist. In other words, we need to, to treat by doing no harm. We know that voices right across MSF support the need for a stronger public narrative on climate change, and in particular the way it affects so many of the people we assist. While these messages uh, should be anchored in evidence and our experience as health workers, we must at the same time avoid detracting attention away from other human-induced crises, like conflict, violence, poverty, deprivation of healthcare and essential drugs, migration, and the way people on the move are treated. We all also agree that in many ways COP26 has fallen short of the commitments needed, but as an organization and let alone as a movement, we must ensure, as you said, Steve, that we see the required changes as an ongoing process, not as a single moment. I want to thank Maria and Steve for uh, energy, their passion and effort in Glasgow, and I want to thank them for today. It is now for all of us to keep the momentum that they have helped generate and make sure we build on it as doctors without borders. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.